Let us pray. Lord our God, as we come now to open Your Word, to read it together, to hear it proclaimed this morning, Father, we, we need Your Spirit. We need Him to come and to give us understanding. Now, Lord, we ask and pray that You would do a, a mighty work in and through us through preaching this morning. Father, sanctify Your people and we pray for any who may be here this morning that does not know Christ. We ask in Your grace and mercy and power that You would save them and bring them to faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You would remain standing and take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians 10, we will begin at verse 1 and read this morning through verse 6. Hear now the Word of God. It is infallible, it is inerrant, it is God speaking to us, so let us pay close attention. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Last Sunday morning, we looked at all of 2 Corinthians 9, and we finished the section where Paul was dealing with the offering that was to go to the poor Jewish Christian believers in Jerusalem. Again, the church had begun the offering, but... They had difficulties, and so they did not take up the offering. And, and in chapters 8 and 9, Paul was encouraging them to continue on with taking that offering and to send it to Jerusalem. Last week, we saw how that offering would actually be a ministry to the saints and for the saints. Paul exhorted them to give cheerfully. And understanding as they gave cheerfully, as they gave to the ministry of the saints, that, that God would pour out His grace upon them. This morning we enter into the final section of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And Paul 
in this second or final section, we are going to notice a difference in his tone. You will notice that Paul becomes much more personal. And he's dealing with those in the church who were attacking him. Those false teachers who were saying that Paul was not a true apostle of Jesus Christ. After all, he didn't have the same letters of credential as they did. And so Paul is writing to the Corinthians because he knows as long as those men remained in the church there, that the church of Corinth would no longer have harmony or peace. It would vanish. It would go away. And Paul wants them to recognize that these assaults on him were actually an assault upon the church, but that they were, were spiritual assaults. Now what are we to do with such spiritual assaults? Well, we need, first of all, to understand, and, and I don't believe we do as the modern church. I believe we have forgotten that, that we are the church militant. We're in war. We're at war. Now, many times we don't realize that. We don't have that war footing in the church. We go about our daily lives. We think everything is going fine. But we fail to realize the spiritual warfare that is happening around us and in us. And that we're a part of it. Christian, do you ever think about what you're doing this morning as you come into the worship of God? And what we'll do tonight as we come back together in the worship of God, that there's so much going on around us that we don't even see that this is a, a spiritual war we are in this morning for the souls of men and women and children. Our lives are going well, so what does it matter? Paul understood the warfare that he was in. Paul understood the church at Corinth, the war that they were in. And so he gives us some idea of the weapons that he uses and that we are to use as well here this morning. And he's pleading with the Corinthians that they would remain faithful to Christ and the gospel that the apostles had proclaimed. And so it begins this morning, first of all, with Paul reminding us of two things, of, of meekness and courage. Can a man be meek but also have the courage and the boldness of a lion? Paul says yes. So it was Paul. You know, it's been said the most dangerous man in the world is the man who just wants to be left alone. Who just wants to live his life and raise his family. And there's a lot of truth to that. Now Paul didn't want to be left alone, but Paul reminds us here this morning of, of meekness and, and humility and how he had such meekness and humility. Verse 1, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you, when I am away. Paul personally appeals here to the Corinthians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 
Now there are some who have a wrong view of Jesus. They love the meek and mild Jesus, but they don't love Jesus when He turns over the tables in the temple. And they somehow think that Jesus being meek and mild meant that He wasn't bold or that He he wasn't always doing that which was right in the sight of His Father. No, Jesus was meek and mild, but He was also bold for the will of His Father. Paul is demanding the Corinthians' full attention as he deals with the matter of false teachers. He appeals to the virtues of Christ. Meekness. Meekness is often considered a weakness, isn't it? You see a man that is meek, you say, oh, he's a, he's a weak man. But the, the Bible teaches that these two qualities are not identical. You see, meekness refers to Enduring disgrace and maltreatment and death at the hands of evildoers. We see Christ doing just that. He endured disgrace. The very moment He was brought into this world, He was born, He endured disgrace for us. Throughout His ministry, He that he endured maltreatment by his own people, his own family. His half-brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection, many of them. And he suffered death at the hands of evil doers. And he, he, he was meek and humble. And he did all of that to save his people. D.A. Carson said this, meekness denotes the humble and gentle attitude which expresses itself in particular in a patient submissive to offense, submissiveness to offense, free from malice and desire for revenge. Christ was meek in His first advent. In His second, He will come in great boldness and judgment. But he also appeals to the gentleness of Christ. This term denotes graciousness, leniency, and and fairness. Now, gentleness and meekness are closely related. Gentleness is related to meekness and actually flows from it. If, If one is meek, then one will be Gentle. And so these two terms must describe every Christian who desires to follow the example of Christ. And so Paul goes on, he says, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. Now, the false teachers in Corinth, they were using this against Paul. They were saying, oh, when he's not in your presence, he's very bold. But when he's in your presence, he's not as bold as he would like to be. Paul says he is humble, lowly when he is face to face with the Corinthians. See, Paul was accused of being weak when he was present. But as soon as he was away, 
he would be bold. And so they were trying, these opponents of Paul, they were trying to subvert his apostleship. They, they needed to nullify his ministry by asserting that his ministry was merely of human origin. That Paul wasn't a true apostle of Christ and that the church should not listen to Paul. And so Paul takes advantage of their accusations. He turns weakness into a virtue and he sees himself as an instrument in God's hand so that in lowliness and weakness, what do we see? We see the power of God becoming evidence. Have you ever seen a pastor who didn't speak too clearly when he was out of the pulpit? But something happened when the man entered the pulpit and the Spirit of God would come upon him and, and he would speak as clear as anyone else. You see, Paul was humble and he was gentle, but God was using him. God's power was seen through the weakness of Paul. And so he continues in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Paul speaks of coming to the Corinthians again. He speaks here of, of three things, that he need not come to deliver a stern address to them. That's really why he's written this letter in the first letter, so that he would not have to do that. That upon his arrival, he may have the confidence and courage to encounter those who are slandering his name. The slanderers, the false teachers. And the third thing he hopes to show is that his conduct had been above reproach. Paul knows that his departure for Corinth is coming. He, he hopes that those false teachers would leave and just go away from the church and that Paul would rather be welcomed by the Corinthians in mutual love and respect than face that hostility. But he, he speaks of, of confidence in verse 2 as well. You see, Paul opposes these false teachers and so should we. Any man that were to come into this church and teach false doctrine, we should oppose such a man Vehemently, not with weakness, but with boldness. Paul desires to have confidence when he needs to have it as he confronts some there in the church. Paul had to disprove the, the slanderers of his the slanders of those who are slandering him, who accuse him of being a, a weak man when he comes to Corinth, but bold at a distance. Now, this accusation could be made against people today. We might call them keyboard warriors. Or those who will confront you through an email, but not face to face. See, Paul understood such people and he understood that he had to confront them, but he was confident in that. And he was also Confident in his own conduct. And 
As he says, they're confident as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. You see, Paul is in war, is at war with these false teachers. They are few in number, but it doesn't take many, does it, to destroy the church. It doesn't take many ruling elders or even many pastors to start teaching and preaching against our confessional standards, even though we take vows to uphold them fully, to start teaching and preaching against such and, and to have the congregation start wondering, well, why does he say that when, when we say that's our confession? One man can destroy a church. Now, the false teacher was saying to Paul that he was conducting himself as an unbeliever, that he walked according to the flesh. They were accusing Paul of being an inept leader, one whose timidity made him an ineffective preacher, one who lacked basic spiritual qualities to edify the Corinthians. They say Paul was walking according to the flesh. Now why is Paul saying these things to the church? Well, when he comes, he wants them to be a united front. What, what is, is it easier or more difficult to defeat a united front or a scattered front? When you have an army standing shoulder to shoulder with their weapons of war, war drawn against the opposing force, they will be able to withstand that force. And, and by God's grace, they will be able to put back that force. And so Paul wants that united front when he comes to Corinth to stand against these false teachers. And so in the rest of our text, Paul speaks of weapons. Weapons of Paul's warfare. Weapons of our own warfare. In verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Walking here is the Greek idiom for living and describing our conduct in life or in the world. The term flesh simply means life here on earth. And so the immediate context suggests a, a slightly broader perspective so that we understand the term that to refer to the world around us. It characterizes human behavior as a purely worldly activity and perspective. Now whether we like it or not, God has rules for His kingdom. Sometimes we do not like those rules. But God expects His citizens to live by those rules. But God also has an army with generals and soldiers to fight the evil of Satan and the cohorts of Satan. And so Paul here is a general. He is commanding his forces to go and to oppose as the army of the Lord Satan to wage a war of liberation. How? By preaching the gospel of Christ. That gospel that sets people free. Now certain men are called to go and preach, but all of us are called to go 
and to tell others of their need to be liberated. Their need of being set free from their bondage. Again, as we have joined with Vanguard Presbytery, we we hope and, and pray that God would use us more to evangelize this world because we have not been very good at it. I've not been very good. To go and tell others of Christ. To go and tell them in a loving way their need of Jesus. Their need of of Christ and the gospel. Because without Christ they, they are in bondage. They are dead in their sins and trespasses. And they have no hope in this life or the next. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the followers of Christ that we, we must fight the evil that is around us. Now, when we do that, what happens? It makes us targets. Now, first of all, we need to fight the evil within our own hearts, right? We need to fight the evil that remains within us, too. But we're to fight the evil that we see in this world, the evil that the devil brings into this world that his followers perpetrate and and we are to use the armaments armaments that God has given us. What are they? Well, they're truth and honesty, integrity, justice, holiness, and and faithfulness. And so Paul goes on in verse 4. He says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Our weapons are not of this world. You see, the conflict between God and Satan is spiritual. It must be fought with spiritual weapons. We are to arm ourselves by putting on the full armor of God. And this consists of of peace, truth, righteousness, faith, love, light, the sword of the Spirit, And salvation. And not only are we to put that whole armor on. We are to then pray as well. Every day we are to put the armor that God has given us on to go out in this world. And we are to bathe that going out with prayer. We are to hold on to the message of God's word. And we are to ask the spirit of God to dwell in our heart. John Calvin put it this way, says that the believer must learn to think of the gospel as a fire at which the wrath of Satan is enkindled. And so he cannot but arm himself to the fight whenever he sees an opportunity for advancing the gospel. And Paul says we have divine power to destroy strongholds. John Knott said this, with God, man is always in the majority. Many times we think as Christians we are in the minority. But with God we are always in the majority. With God we can destroy the strongholds of Satan. God's word enters Satan's strongholds and demolishes. The opposition of Satan. 
And you see, our problem is this, we don't believe it. You're hearing it this morning. You're hearing Paul say to the church of Corinth and to this church, the Word of God that is taken to this world destroys strongholds, but you don't believe it. Because if we did, we would take the Word of God to this world more than we're doing. He continues in verse 5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We destroy arguments with the Gospel and the Word of God. Now what are those arguments? Those arguments that have been formed against the knowledge of God. You see, every man has a knowledge of God. As I have said many times over, there is no such thing as an atheist because Paul tells us in Romans 1, they know that God exists, they know that He is real, but in their sin and unrighteousness, they, they push that, idea, that knowledge of God down until finally they believe the lie they've been telling themselves. Paul describes the conflict in terms of, of spiritual warfare. It's not against people. It's against patterns. It's against philosophies. It's against theories and views and tactics. And in this warfare, God's people continually demolish the citadels of our enemies. We destroy their arguments. How? By the Word of God. Young people, if you're in college or if you're going there, you can destroy your atheist professor's arguments with the Word of God. And don't be ashamed to do that. Stand up for what you believe. Even if it means you fail the course. Stand up for Christ. Quit hiding your Christian faith because you're going to a school that doesn't recognize your Christian faith. Maybe you should not go to such a school, but if you're there in God's providence, stand up. Do it respectfully. Do it with love in your heart for those who are trying to destroy your arguments. But know this, that you will destroy their arguments. And we destroy those arguments, Paul says. The, uh, the intruders in Corinth, they, they had their verbal weapons and their onslaughts against the truth. You know, we live in an age now that does not recognize truth. It's been that way for some time. The first time I heard that this phrase, truth is relative, was in ninth grade. I was in public school. I was not uh, very far along in my, in my Christian walk. And, and, and he was an atheist teacher. And he said, truth is relative. There is no such thing as objective truth. And we as a society, we have bought that. We have, we, we have bought that hook, line, and sinker. And now, this, today, there is no objective truth in the lives of many, in the minds of many. Now you go and you destroy their argument. How do you destroy their argument? Well, one way is to say, well, if there's no truth and there is no truth by which we live by, then I can take a weapon and I can kill you right now and there's nothing that you or anybody else can do about it. They won't like that. You see, we abolish 
these views and these thoughts with the truth. They rise up against the knowledge of God and every sinner rises up against the knowledge of God. And we are to do what Paul says in the latter part of verse 5. We are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now why is that important? Well, where, where does sin many times begin? It begins in our thoughts. It begins in our heart, but in our thoughts as well. And I, I see the two is the same. We think of sin or temptation and we let it grow and we let it fester. We do not take the, the thoughts that we have captive. The verb here is to lead captive. And it's in the present tense. It indicates the, the act of taking prisoners. And the battle is won and the victory is inclusive. But the battle is not to subdue people, but our thoughts. Let me ask you, do you want to see this culture conquered for Christ? Now, many would say yes to that. And, and many do, and they try, though, to use worldly means to do that. But you see, the, the, the culture that is conquered for Christ remains intact, but its components are transformed to serve Him. Do we want to see this culture that we're in conquered for Christ? Well, it begins with us taking our thoughts captive and then by calling others to take their thoughts captive in conformity with the teachings not of this world, but with the teachings of Jesus and His Word. And then Paul ends in verse 6 in our text, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Those who had infiltrated the church at Corinth, they, would, they are about to face a general in the army of Christ by the name of Paul. And he is ready to mete out punishment against them. Paul reminds us everyone who has shown disobedience to Christ's gospel will face punishment. Every false teacher, every false prophet, every man that leads the children of God astray will face punishment. But Paul says, first, your obedience needs to be complete. Paul reminds them that Christ controls the Corinthian situation. When he comes, he will... He will execute judgment and use Paul as his agent for that judgment. Paul distinguishes here between the many who are faithful in Corinth and the few that are not. But if these men are not dealt with, the few will become the many. And so Paul is going to go and he is going to judge these men as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because the matter of these false teachers, it touches every member of the Corinthian church. For they were preaching a gospel other than that of the gospel of Christ. And that's what it boils down to, isn't it? 
Eventually, every false teaching in the church will take us to another gospel. And there's no new false teaching in the church. They just read of an old heresy and they put a different spin on it, but they're teaching the same things. But eventually, if it is not dealt with, it will lead to a gospel that is not of Christ. And so Paul wants the Corinthians to know they must eradicate these false teachers and their teachings and obey only the gospel of Christ. Now what application are are we to make here this morning? First, we as Christians, we are to live by by meekness and gentleness and, and kindness. We do this by practicing the teachings of Christ. It does not mean we we are weak, but that we treat others better than ourselves. And that's what Paul says in Philippians, isn't it? That, That Christ humbled himself. And he came to this earth and, and, and we are to follow his teachings. We are to follow the teachings of Christ. And we are to know and understand and consider our brother or sister in the Lord better than we are. We're not to seek first our own way. You see, that's what keeps unity in the church. Again, the church is not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And so we keep unity by treating others better than ourselves. We keep unity in the church as we practice the teachings of Christ. And then we become those who are pillars of righteousness and defenders of the faith. Christian, whether you like it or not, you are to be a pillar of righteousness and a defender of the faith in Christ. You don't have a choice. You don't have a choice to be a soldier in the army of Jesus. You already are. And God places us in strategic places in this world to promote His rule on earth. Second, we as the church, we are to take our spiritual weapons. We are to fight against the kingdom of Satan and darkness. We are not called to sit on the sidelines. We are to be active in the battles, knowing that the war we are in has already been won. We we are to cast down imaginations. We are to cast down every argument that is against the knowledge of God and Christ Jesus. And we are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. Of Jesus. Let me put it another way. We're to have a biblical world and life view. Everything we do. Everything we think. Everything we say. Should be through the lens of Holy Scripture. When you go to work tomorrow. You do it for the honor and glory of Christ. Not to make money. Now, making money is nice, right? Because we can support our family. But that's not why you're going. You're going to take every thought captive in the workplace. You're going to tell others of Christ when they give you an opportunity, even if it means that you might be fired for doing so. 
Third, understand those who reject the gospel will face punishment by the Lord Himself. Now this applies first and foremost to those who teach and preach. Again, it's a a grave responsibility to preach the Word of God, to teach the Word of God in His church. And and if such men reject the gospel and they begin to, to preach another gospel, God Himself will deal with such men. But if we reject the gospel in this life, Christ will come and deal with us at His second coming. For through the working of the Holy Spirit, Christ's gospel is an overpowering force that calls people to repentance and faith. You know, when the the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, in an area, in a town, in a city. When the people of God go out with that same gospel and tell others, we then see God doing, doing a work. And in time, what do we see God doing work, uh, work in, in such places? We see God, as the gospel goes out, changing the structure of society so that it becomes a city of God and no longer a city of man. See, the kingdom of Christ, it's not a matter of talk, but it's a matter of power. And then finally, let me ask you, has the gospel changed you? Are you wholeheartedly serving Jesus in obedience to His Word? If we're honest with ourselves, we will answer and say, the first part, yes, the gospel has changed me. I'm not who I was. I'm probably not being as wholeheartedly obedient to Christ as I should. If not, confess that this morning and ask Christ by His Spirit to use you to go out in this world, to tell others of Christ, to tell others of the Gospel, to show them by how you live. Yes, you're going to fall. Yes, you're going to sin. But by the grace of God and His Spirit, you get back up and you, you confess that sin and you say, but Jesus Christ has forgiven me. And you show that to other people. And that's what God uses by His power and grace and mercy to change people and cities and nations and the world. Church, understand that Jesus Christ has His army, His kingdom. It is going forth whether, we're not, whether or not we go with it. It is marching onward into the territories of the enemy and it is taking those who are in captivity and setting them free. We are called to participate in that work. We are called to be faithful. But if the gospel has not changed you, then hear this morning your need to be changed. You are not a good person apart from Christ. You are wicked, you are evil, you are sinful. Every thought and imagination you have is upon sin and sin continually. And you can do nothing about it. But if God is revealing that to you this morning, He is the one that can take you and set you free as He changes your heart and gives you a new heart and calls you to Christ 
through the gospel, the good news of Jesus coming and dying for sinners such as us, humbling himself to the point of death on the cross to save wicked, evil men, women, and children. It is God's work, it is not ours, but you are called to come to Christ in faith and repentance. If God is showing you that this morning, then come to Him. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. And be set free. And be entered into the army of God. To go forth in this world. And to call men and women and children to repentance and faith. In Jesus. To destroy the arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. And take every thought captive. To obey Him. May God add His blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Father. We thank You this morning for Your Word. And first and foremost, foremost, O Lord, we ask that You would forgive us for those times when we sit on the sideline in the battle that we are in and we let other people fight but know You call us to fight. Give us boldness. Give us courage to go and to fight with the weapons that You have given us. Those spiritual weapons. May we call men and women and children, to faith in Jesus Christ, O Lord. And and Father, we ask that You would pour out Your blessing upon Your church. And Father, even though we may not see it in this life, we know in the next we will see what You have done in and through Your church from age to age, generation after generation in this world. Lord, give us boldness. Give us courage. Father, I ask and pray again if there are any here this morning who are lost and without Jesus, You would would save them. That You would humble them in their sin and depravity and bring up their eyes and place their eyes upon Christ on the cross dying for their sins. Give them faith. And give them the gift of repentance. And call them to your son. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.